Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. None of us have this figured out. If we did, we wouldn't have 153 million children living in poverty. We all need to keep each other in check and have accountability and truth-telling. Welcome back to episode 49 of What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode is made possible by our friends at Learn Grant Writing. In today's episode, I'm interviewing my friend, Maggie Doyne. As many people know, at 19 years old, Maggie set off on a gap year that ultimately led her to co-found Blink Now and personally adopt almost 60 Nepalese children. Her story is complicated, inspiring, nuanced, beautiful, and painful. She has been hailed as CNN Hero of the Year and criticized for perpetuating the white savior narrative. In this episode, we are going to talk about both, and we untangle some of the duality that Maggie and Blink Now experienced when the media would cover Maggie's inspiring story. Maggie shares successes and challenges, apologizes for the way in which she's caused harm in the past, and reminds us all what it looks like to get curious, quiet, absorb feedback, and learn to do better. You hear not only what she would do differently, but her recommendations for the next generation of change makers. We discuss the power of vulnerability as a teacher and storytelling as a tool, why it's important to deploy an inside-out approach that honors the people who know best, the ones on the ground in the local community. We also talk about how the nonprofit sector as a whole can do better, starting with a commitment to learning from one another. We share some hard truths about our own relationships to perfectionism, discomfort, comparison, and I even talk about my experience with jealousy. We often approach conversations like this in binary ways, good, bad, right, wrong, ethical, unethical, but what this conversation creates is an opening for more curiosity, wonder, learning, and listening. This episode doesn't contain all of the answers, but shares some deep and vulnerable learning that is incredibly good for the sector. I'm so proud of Maggie for all that she has accomplished, but even more admiring of the way she takes feedback, learns and adjusts, and occupies the unknown with integrity, taking one brave step at a time. So let's dive in so you can meet Maggie. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with my friend, Maggie Doyne. Maggie, thank you for joining me for this conversation. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. We met years ago in different phases of our lives, and it's been such a privilege to get to witness and be a part of your journey. And I'm sure a lot of people coming to this um, episode today know a lot about you, but tell us a little bit about your background and history and what brings you to this conversation today. I'm the co-founder of the Blink Now Foundation. Our work is focused on community development, orphan care, education in the Karnali region of Midwestern Nepal. When I was 19 years old, I was accidentally traveling in Northeastern India And I stumbled upon a community in Midwestern Nepal, actually with my Nepali friend, Sunita. And there was a dry riverbed with children breaking rocks to earn a living. Instead of going back to college, long story short, I stayed and worked with my co-founder, Tope, to create Copula Valley, which is a beautiful community development project working with vulnerable children in their communities to thrive and grow and become change makers following the civil war in Nepal. 
And that's like a blip of the story, right? And now, so you're co-founder of this amazing organization. You just came out with your first book. Tell us a little bit about that and what that journey was like, how it relates to the work of Blink now and what it means to you. Yeah. So the book is called Between the Mountain and the Sky. It's about the journey of living in Nepal, raising children in Nepal, being an outsider in a community and a culture that's not your own and navigating the push and the pull of things like culture and how to bring about change in an ethical community-based way in partnership with the local community. It's about, it's a memoir and a coming of age and a love story and a story about motherhood. It's a story about grief. It's a synopsis of the last 15 years of my own life and my own journey and my learnings, my failures, my mistakes. I felt like it was time to speak more deeply about some of these issues. And I think at the end of the day, I wanted something to pass on to our children. Oh, I love that. And I've loved seeing the reviews from the kids and their takeaways from reading the book. I just think that's so special. You also have been recognized as CNN Hero of the Year. You have a large following of folks who really idolize your journey and the work that you've done. And you've also shared with me before that There have been videos that have gone viral for good things, and there are videos that have gone viral in negative ways. I know that this book was part of your journey of processing what are the different pieces that have created this story over the last 15 years, the ones that have felt good and have felt in alignment, and where are the areas that I wish I had known what I know now around X or done something differently. So will you talk to us a little bit about that and how it felt putting it on paper? For years and maybe over a decade, there were these little blips in the media that were a piece of the story. We definitely rode the wave and reaped all the benefits from media. It started with Cosmo Girl magazine. We were the face of the Cosmo Girl of the Year, and then we moved into Glamour Woman of the Year. We were on the back of the Doritos bag, CNN Hero. At one point, I was on the cover of the New York Times magazine. We definitely leveraged that media coverage in a way that we could go out, get resources, transform that into impact and change lives. But with that came this surface level of the story that would just scratch the surface. Like, well, it was a makeover story and it came with $20,000 and a Maybelline makeover. Tope and I would be like, take the makeover, take the 20,000. We need, we need electricity. We need food and, and resources. In working in partnership with the local community, I realized early on, they have all the answers to their problem. They know what changes they want to bring about following a civil war in a food deficit region with a million orphan children in the country. They know how to do this work. In my privilege and where I came from, I saw as I'm going to go and get us money. I'm going to go get us resources. I'm going to babysit. I'm going to have garage sales. I'm going to sell cupcakes. That was like the 19-year-old stage. And then that evolved into 501c3 and a nonprofit. But in the blips of the media, it would say she's working with the local community. And I always talked about co-founder and that the secret sauce and the magic and all of this is that it's the community formed by the community. But just time after time, that was the story that was picked up, no matter how we pitched it. Our methodology was always like, okay, take it and go create change and go create impact. But I started to realize after a decade and year after year and story after story and trying to step away and share that voice or share that platform that I was doing an injustice to how the story should be told. I was the face of voluntourism, of gap years, of saviorism, of all of these hot button adoption, international Mm. development, how to do this work ethically and right and in partnership. And I just felt this really immense responsibility to tell the truth beyond CNN heroes blip. Like the word hero even started to feel uncomfortable. There was a time when I like didn't know how to move away from that. That was our life force. And that was just something that the media did. And we would try other ways and other things. I read every book there was to read. I knew why development had failed due to colonialism. I'd I'd read all of those books. I knew that we couldn't export American culture and bring, I'm from New Jersey, bring New Jersey to this community. I that, And that was also a reason why the project was successful because we went in with that knowledge and the work worked. 
but I just felt like the book would give an opportunity to go deeper, bring more characters to life of who were the people beyond the surface, beyond the media, beyond that heroic savior language. And I tried my very best to do the best I could. I decide not to read the whole book before this conversation because I always ask better questions when I don't know more of the answers. But at the very beginning of the book, you bring this up. Like it's one of the first sentences, first pages in the book. And I was really glad to see it because I can imagine that you get a ton of people reaching out to you or following along wanting to do exactly what you did based on that surface level media coverage. So thinking perhaps that it looks different or decisions were made differently than they actually were on the ground. And so what would you say to someone who's, oh, Maggie, I want to replicate your journey and I want to do what you did right now. What would be some of your biggest advice to someone in those shoes? We get those messages all the time. What inspires me the most is that we usually get those questions now from people living in their own communities. We'll get, I mentor a young woman in India who wants to change her community in Rajasthan, Sri Lanka, South America. I'm mentoring a young gal from Liberia right now who's creating uh, Girl Up. It's an incredible organization. We do get those questions. When I get them from people from their communities, it's awesome. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I think that's how things should be done. It should be someone from the community. And that's what Tope was for us. He was from that community. The women who we work with, who I'm so honored to serve alongside, they're from there. And when people ask, why was this successful? Why did it work? Why have you been doing this work for 15 going on 16 years, I say it's because it's theirs. Like Mm -hmm. they knew how to address these really complex problems. When it's an outsider who had that moment on a riverbed or like me, had their heart pulled in a certain direction or saw a problem that they wanted to see changed, saw an opportunity to bring their privilege and their power and make a difference somewhere where their heart led them. I think the first thing I say is what's happening in the community already and find your partners, find your people, find the folks on the ground, because the world doesn't need us all to go out there (laughs) to try to change. It needs a community in a community lifting itself up, looking at how children can thrive and grow in their own communities and their own culture. So that's the first question I say is what's happening there already? Because you really have to have a deep understanding of the language, the culture, the people, and you just won't succeed if you're an outsider dropping in being like, here's how we're going to do things. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's going to fail from the second you take one step. So I ask questions. I always make sure the person's leading with curiosity, with asking, with getting to know, with trying to understand, with actually living and committing to live in community and in partnership with people. I look at intentions, but again, good intentions are not enough. It's just not enough. And I look at the team surrounding them and ask them about the team surrounding them and ask them what the people there see as the needs in their own community. And sometimes the answer is resources. And if you are someone that can go out and get resources, great. What does that look like? A lot of it's operations. How do we operate? And I'm always there to mentor and look at structure and how I can help create organizational structure and how entities may work together. And I also just share the truth about my own experience and what I learned and where I failed and at at what points at certain stages we made certain decisions and and what led to those decisions. So there's a lot, there's not a lot of truth telling and collaboration and (laughs) in this field, we don't talk about mistakes. Mm. We don't always talk about, like, it's not an industry that exactly leads itself to be like working together. Everybody often gets mm. in their own vortex. And so I've really been working hard to break that vortex and find people and have these honest and open conversations and share ideas and share what's worked and build a community of change makers to be honest and open about and create these conversations. You're one of those people for me that mm. I've found that's okay, let's have these honest conversations and these hard conversations. I'm covered in chills, which is always a good sign on these podcasts that, that I or that the guest just said something really true. And I think what you brought up there at the end is just this very 
very real and very destructive component of the nonprofit sector. And I think it happens for a lot of reasons. I think it happens because of money scarcity and this feeling of competitiveness. I think it has to do with just the head down, hustle, grind nature inside the sector that partnership takes time and that often nonprofits don't feel like they have that time, or maybe they'd be jeopardizing their resources by doing something like that. But it strikes me as this really fundamental issue to address because if we're actually going to solve like big global problems, how on earth could we expect that that's going to happen without transparency around the mistakes that we're making? Yeah. Yeah. Just think about how, look at CNN Heroes, which I'm so grateful for. It was an incredible platform. They paired the award ceremony with training with An- at Annenberg Foundation, mm. the leading research on nonprofit development and the ethics around these issues. And I was so grateful to be a recipient of that, but we were voting against each other. Mm. Like it was a popularity contest of who gets the most votes. And children's rights in Nepal is competing against homelessness in America, is competing against child trafficking in India, is competing against health initiatives. And it's, it creates that. And I remember being there in those environments. It was always voting. Oh, get this many likes on social media, play that game. And I wrote about that really openly and honestly and how we have to stand up against this. Why can't the sloths rights of South America, (laughs) why do we have to vote against them? (laughs) All of us need to be in this together because all of us holding hands and putting our hearts into making this world better is what will change. And the second you start voting in popularity contests and social media likes is the second we're destined for failure. And yeah, I do think there's more honesty. There's more conversation around this. We've come light years in the past few years. And that gives me a lot of hope. And when you know better, you do better. That's what Maya Angelou says. And we're all getting there. We're going to get there. Yeah. I really appreciate you saying that because I've dreamed for a while of a database of like nonprofit failures where we could go and learn, like, why didn't this thing work? And I think it's complicated. Sometimes it's hard to compare like apples to oranges because sometimes it's a funding challenge. Sometimes it's a leadership challenge. Sometimes it's an infrastructure challenge of the organization. But I think what you're bringing up is, okay, If we don't actually connect the dots around these things, break down some of these silos, there's actually a few things that are going to happen. One, we're really not going to be able to ultimately eradicate these issues. We're also going to continue, in my opinion, to set up the funding for each other in really negative ways because it's a short-term mindset. And that carries over then to the ways that we fundraise, which is often why we see horrible donor retention rates. And donor retention rates, in my opinion, have an impact not just on your organization, but on the entire infrastructure of the sector. If a donor has a bad experience at one nonprofit, it impacts what they believe and think about the sector and how they're going to give to something else. And I think we really undervalue the importance of that. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's a huge industry and it's like anything in life, one bad story, and then it's really easy to become tainted. I was just talking to a friend about this. Like, I also think nonprofit leaders are put up on this really high pedestal of you're perfect, you have things figured out. Look at you off changing the world. And it's this romanticized image. And so we hold nonprofit leaders up here. And then all of a sudden when there's less than, at the end of the day, everybody's a human being. So one person falls or makes a mistake and everyone's oh, look over there at that. There's this part, I think, in our humanness that likes to see the falling or the knocking down or the mistakes. And I don't know what that's about, but I've talked to friends about it and it's, it's, there it goes again, the story of Mm. perfection or imperfection or somebody Mm. falling. It does hurt the industry. One bad story hurts everybody. (gasps) I can't tell you how many times I've heard, oh, Sally Sue over there, they got all of their money just taken away because blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Oh, 
yeah, I've gone into a deep hole recently around the comment section on Instagram for folks responding to the Ukraine crisis by giving through Airbnb or buying digital art on Etsy, because I've been fascinated with the reasons that people are choosing to support in those ways versus giving to on the ground grassroots nonprofits. And I think it reveals a lot of the misconceptions or one-time negative experiences that someone had with a nonprofit that then carry over to the way they think about even engaging in social impact and with the sector. And so I think we have a lot of work to do. And I wish everyone would see the value in supporting other initiatives in the sector that you're not going to get some, you're not going to be able to put on your impact report, but your knowledge and wisdom is going to make a big difference in what happens with that organization and that impact. Yeah, I love challenging when people make those huge blanket statements of when you give, it doesn't actually go to the local people. (laughs) Big aid is bad, diplomacy. And then you're like, let's talk about that. I, I really love going there because we like to make snap judgments and talk about things we don't know about. And then when you dig deeper, it's okay, where is this coming from? You know how important diplomacy is peacemaking, you know, like actually how does, how are development dollars spent from our foreign aid budget? Do you know what the difference is between an NGO and a 501c3 and how important these structures are in, in countries? Yeah. I'm always quick to jump to, they have high overhead. So, you know, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, there's this narrative that I think enough of us have to work really actively and conscientiously, Mm -hmm. mindfully to engage in conversation and knowledge and and more truth telling for sure. I'm curious. I'm thinking about this book is this coming of age story, but I think about the organization really came of age with you. And we've said the word perfectionism a few times. And I think about, sometimes when I think about your journey, I think about God, if an organization followed the arc of my development as a woman from 19 into my mid thirties and all the things I've grappled with around my own identity and my own enoughness and my own perfectionism and all these different pieces. How have you watched yourself and your leadership evolve as you've evolved as a person? What are some of the biggest things you've noticed? Luckily, Topes in his (laughs) fifties. the book that's always like a little bit ahead um my co-founder the thing about being young was that it came with this beautiful gift of not fearing failure not having all of the what ifs it came with this lens on the world of like why can't we do better why are we still in this place as a human family why can't we do better for our children I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do better. It was this youth and this passion and this power and this, I want to make more opportunity for other people. And I wouldn't change that because that is beautiful. If we could harness that energy from every young person everywhere of using our gifts and our talents and our privilege to create a more equal and just world, that's just amazing. That being said, it isn't enough. You need so many other things. And I think the flip side of my youth was that because I was so young, I also knew I didn't know all the answer and that it came with the curiosity and an asking of questions and needing to find people to balance that energy, balance that young, we can do anything. Let's just do this. Let's like, why are children on the riverbed breaking rocks? And I was very lucky and very humbly guided and very forgivingly welcomed into a culture and a community that saw that passion and that fire in my eyes and that connection to an outside world who could bring resources in, but also able to temper and educate and Mm. (laughs) surround me and take me in as a little sister. And I think on the U.S. side of things too, I was really guided by books. I was guided by other nonprofit leaders who had done this work and were willing to mentor me. I was guided by a board of directors who were lawyers and financial experts and people like women I could learn from. If anything, my power and everything that I've learned and everything that's made us standing where we are today and that coming of age journey has been because of the people 
who taught me and who were willing to share their truth and were willing to share their mistakes and were willing to share their vulnerabilities. That young person in me who was willing to listen, that young person in me that was willing to say, I don't know, I feel something here and it's in my heart and I want to do better, but I need to learn how first. I need to learn how. The whole beginning arc of the book is that you feel it's like this mm-hmm. child putty is wrong, right? Mm-hmm. I'm a girl from Jersey and young girls sleeping in child putty huts when they're menstruating and it's it's the culture and I'm like no I don't want it to be the culture but it's the culture and then there's this really gray line of how much is the culture and how much should we be fighting this the end of that arc as I'm fighting and failing and falling is oh this is not my fight to fight this is the community's fight this is the community and I'm just one teeny tiny speck I'm one piece of the puzzle but this has to come from the people from the children from the community and that's where the end of that arc is the best way I can describe it is I'm going to throw my body and I'm going to throw my privilege in. I'm going to throw my whiteness in because if I'm there then these things can't happen mm. it's not that simple this card of privilege it does get you someplace it gets you far at the door and then you have to figure out how to use it right mm. and how to use it ethically and use it appropriately and that's a question I still ask myself all the time right what's my place here First T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. So envisioning you in this role where you're positioned oftentimes between the donors in the U.S. and the community in Nepal. And as you said before, you all did leverage these media opportunities to expand your network and raise resources to do this work in Nepal. I could imagine that while you might have had that mind around listening to local leadership, that some of the trends we see with donors is power dynamics that involve them thinking they know best about what a community needs. And I had another podcast episode that was about this, not in terms of an international scenario, but just saying that oftentimes in human work, everyone kind of thinks they're an expert. And I'm curious, was there ever tension there with you and donors holding that line? I think we've attracted donors who understood that the people know (laughs) the answers and we led with that in meetings. I think that I was from Mendham, New Jersey, got me access and got me a seat at the table in ways that we couldn't have. That being said, that's problematic too, because I saw myself as like a conduit, but a lot of times I would say, look, these people are incredible. They're the most intelligent, amazing. They know the answers to these questions. They know how to make their community better. And this is our plan and this is our strategy and this is how we're going to do it. So I think I was a good messenger in that way, sitting in donor meetings, but I also think there was more trust as I was this familiar face and this promise that I was also there. And that's where I think it could be problematic. Like, I think people want to give where they can trust, like where they know that their dollar matters. And I was there to make that promise of be like, I know that this matters because I've seen it and I'm working with the people on the ground. And these are the changes. These are the stories. Look at our children up on stage, reading poetry and winning debates and playing chess works. But I think they believed me and they invested in me because I looked like them. And I think therein lies a problem. Mm -hmm. And it's the reason why there's not enough diversity at the table. There's not enough donor dollars being invested into people from their own communities. So I think we were able to leverage it because I was like, look, I'm there. We're doing this. This is Tope. This is Milan. This is Naim. These are the kids. These are the people. But what I think we need to get to is making sure that Nepali women have that same platform and that Mm -hmm. same power and that same trust and that same 
ability to sit in those meetings and not needing to look a certain way. Hmm. And how do we get there? How do we connect these incredible change makers on the ground to resources without needing (laughs) somebody familiar Mm. looking or like the girl next door? I don't know. Yeah, I think part of this is anti-racism training. And I think the role that nonprofits individually and collectively can play in training their donors and recognizing where there's gatekeeping and opening the gates. Like when I see a nonprofit put a local who does international development work and maybe their headquarters are in the U.S., but they're putting their local partner organizations directly in front of their funders and telling them about them and trying to build trust, not where they're the person doing the thing, but they're saying, we want to introduce you directly to some of our partners. And I've seen, I've had organizations do webinars like that, where they bring their donors together. And we want you to meet these folks on the ground, trying to connect those resources to folks. I think that's one thing nonprofits can do is to really, and to recognize that, like, especially when we're talking about individual giving, it is really not an either or situation. I think for folks who are listening to this, a lot of people don't want to do that because they're like, oh, then they're going to give to them instead of us. No, actually, they're going to feel a warmer, deeper connection to you because you gave them another meaningful experience. And they're likely going to give to one of the organizations they were moved by as well. We're only watching individual generosity increase And so I would really encourage organizations to find opportunities like that, particularly if they're in a situation where they have access to resources that a lot of the organizations around them don't have. Yeah. Yeah. I think our donors all loved that our donors are and supporters are intelligent. They always understood, oh yeah, the people on the ground doing the work are Nepali and everyone knows Tope and loves Tope, Mm. loves Milan and loves our team. But in the early days, I have to ask myself, like Tope didn't speak much English. Like it took a a long time to build that team of Nepali board of directors, of locals, of chairwomen, of middle management. (laughs) So in the early days, had we sent our local team off to suburban New Jersey to go fundraising, would that trust have been there? Mm. And would that same message have gotten across? I think it took Mm. us really building a communications and a marketing plan and a narrative around that. And I Mm. was the first face. And then it was like, okay, look at this amazing team. Mm -hmm. It's about maybe getting in the door, but then passing on the baton and Mm. sharing the platform and bringing, like you said, bringing those people to the table. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you about Sunita, the head of our sustainability programming. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you about our head of girls and women's empowerment. Let me tell you about mm-hmm. the director of our health and wellness program. Her name's Milan. Yeah, I just think we need to evolve in the anti racism work where we can get those people at the table from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Let- get them to the table, get them the opportunities from the beginning. So it doesn't take the privilege just Mm -hmm. to be the first ones on the door and the first ones at the table because Mm -hmm. the stories that need to be there are theirs. Mm -hmm. And I think you're bringing up this really interesting concept that I haven't really processed a lot before, which is also the need to examine our own power and privilege at different phases of our own leadership and development. I think, and letting that be a consistent practice. I think as my leadership grew in a nonprofit, I still acted in many ways like I had no power. And I think it caused me to martyr myself Mm -hmm. in certain ways, not flex my privilege and power in more equitable ways or utilize it to transfer power when I really could have, because I had not reflected on my positional change. I just really didn't take the moments, even though I was growing and changing and had access to all of this power and privilege and resources that I didn't have before. I was not looking at that very regularly to say, okay, what does this mean for how I show up as an, a more equitable leader with what I have at my fingertips now? 
Yeah. And I think we all probably got caught up in the hustle. I know I did just, okay, I need resources to make this happen. Mm. Boom. Okay. Just be grateful. We got this piece. Yeah. It's a little Mm. problematic, but ignore that it's a little problematic and just blah, blah, blah. And let's get to work. Let's get to work. Let's get this done. There are hungry Mm. children. There are children that need this intervention right now. And it took a while to be like, okay, wait, step back a second. This is actually it's time to move over. It's time to step back. It's time to hand over the microphone. It's time to make sure that there's other stories being told. Mm -hmm. But you, I think I got caught up in the wheels of it all because I was just like, oh, this has to happen right now. So now that we've been around and at the table for a long time, I don't know. I was so ready to move past that story of the girl backpack and her babysitting money and DIY porn. I was just ready. I was over it. This is not being honest. And I think the answer to, okay, the, the videos would go viral and the news media, it would take on a life of its own. And I didn't do enough in that moment to be like, no, it's really important that this photo is not of me, that it's of my partner. That conversation, this podcast isn't just with me, it's with my co-founder. So we just had to get better about that and our, our own communications and drawing lines and boundaries around media and how we were portrayed in the media and language because language matters. And we learned that lesson. And now we go about engaging with the media in a very different way. And sometimes we still cringe when the piece comes out. AP Press came a couple of years ago before COVID. And I was like, Hey, I, I want to be out of this. This is really important to me that it's a story on the people and this team and interview Tope and interview this woman and that woman and this teacher. And at the end of the day, the piece came out and it was the one picture of me on the cover. And I was just like, oh, I failed again. So I don't know, other than to say I'm learning as I go and I was not perfect. And I failed and I'm sorry for the harm and the damage that I caused. And all I can do is pass on the baton to a more people who can learn from me and learn from our mistakes and hopefully do better. And I think what you said, just be honest. It's interesting. I I was just telling you before we hit record, I'm reading this book by Martha Beck, The Way of Integrity. And she mentions the work of Alice Miller in the book who is a psychiatrist who talks about the cardinal rule of all cultures is don't ever mention the rules. And I just couldn't handle it. I just sat there and I stared at this page for so long. And I was like, what are all the rules of nonprofit that we are not allowed to talk about. And obviously I talk about a lot of them related to fundraising because that's been a part of my liberation, but I think there's so many pieces. And I think back to that reflection piece, and I think you're a very intuitive person, someone who's super in touch with your emotions. And I think it requires that to be able to step back and say, okay, what isn't feeling good? What are ways we're not correcting the story that we need to be correcting? Where can we be more honest? I want to be honest about these things. I want to talk about these things. How is this narrative impacting more than just our organization and the attention around our organization? I think those are questions like for folks who are listening to this to start to think through and what are the rules that you feel like you're never allowed to state as the rules around like how your organization operates, how your organization runs, what you feel like you're not allowed to say to donors. And I think if we can all be more honest about that, we're actually going to run much better organizations and likely solve the problems we haven't been solving. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just standing in integrity, that's what I always ask myself when I'm going to bed at night and the integrity of it all and how can we make sure that we're doing the best we absolutely can every single day trying our best standing in integrity standing in truth transparency honesty saying the hard things even when it's hard that's another reason why i feel like we're still here and we're still doing this work and thousands of lives have been impacted by our work and i'm proud of that I'm so proud of that. Did we always get it right? No. But did our work always stand in integrity? Yes. 
you know, did we serve incredible? <laughs> did we make changes? Did we change that riverbed? Did we give opportunity to those less fortunate? Did we tell stories ethically as best we could? Did we protect the rights of our children? Did we uplift their voices of the, and the platforms of the women in the community we serve as best we could with integrity? So I think focusing on that and constantly asking that question. And when you do, when you feel out of alignment, being like, okay, something's wrong here, step back, learn, listen. Oh my God, there it is. The story of the backpack and the babysitting money again. Oh my God. Like I was ready to grow beyond that too, Mm. but I didn't know I I needed help in figuring out how Mm. I needed less than like a one page blip on CNN heroes. And I still do. I still need help. I still need teachers. I still need to follow the anti-racism movement and listen to podcasts and like just learn and learn and learn and learn. Yeah. I think that constantly curious, always learning, I feel very much there too, which is then indirect conflict with that perfectionism piece. And I think as I, I love the way you talked about your youth and how that wasn't there yet or in the same way perhaps because of how new everything was and I'm curious 15 years in with all of this coverage with so many eyes on you how do you manage the the pressure of that and what I can imagine maybe triggers more of those perfectionism pieces the book just broke it all down it just broke it all down and threw perfectionism out the window Hmm. And it was about telling the truth and, and telling the story. And that's all we have is our own stories and our own truths and our own learnings and just trying to do the best that I can with our team to, yeah, to tell the truth and share our story. That's always been, like I said, what's gotten us this far is by sharing all our vulnerabilities, by sharing our failures. We're a small nonprofit. And what I've learned is that when you do tell the truth, people come along for the ride. We don't give our people enough credit. Mm. (laughs) So yeah, I think all we can do is be honest and transparent and be like, I got that wrong. I'm sorry. Let me try again. Let me try again. So I don't know. I don't know. I hope we're going through so much rapid changes and look at how the narrative and the dialogue is just changing in this time that we're in right now. Mm. Maybe it'll come to a place where you and I can step away from the industry altogether because we're just not needed. Yes. I I have hoped that I said that to someone the other day, they were like, where are you going to be in 20 years? I was was like, I don't know, maybe I'll be obsolete. That'd be cool. It'd be great. (laughs) I love it. Hawaii on the beach. Yes, we will. What question am I not asking you right now that you wish I was asking you? You've watched us over the years. I guess I would ask you, like, what have you seen? How have you seen us change? Gosh, I maybe I'll say something that I definitely was not planning to say, but maybe it will be helpful for people to hear because I think when you and I first got to know each other, we were growing organizations Mm. around the same time. And if I'm totally honest about what I thought or what I felt over the years, there were, there was plenty of times that I felt totally jealous. And Mm. I think, I actually think that's a really important thing for me to say, because I think that is actually what is rooted in a lot of the competitiveness and not that our organizations never overlapped in that way where I felt competitive, but I think there were moments where I felt like, what does it take to have your organization go viral? Or what does it take to get the recognition that you're doing really good work? Or what does it take? And I think so often in society, we use these like performative metrics to validate what we believe are important. And when I was in my early mid twenties, that was definitely what I looked at. And what I thought was like validating around 
the strength of an organization or even the size of an organization. I was like, oh, those things must mean this in terms of a budget, that fundraising is so easy for them, or right, all these stories we have and all these predictions that we make about people around us. And I know that's not the main question that you were asking, but I think it's a really, it's not something I've thought about in years. And I think it's a really important thing to recognize for folks who maybe get pings of that now in their own life or with their own organization, or they're looking at other organizations feeling like they have it all figured out and how do I just blank? And oftentimes those questions have nothing to do with the work and they really have nothing to do with what really matters. And I think for organizations to be better at tracking metrics, not in a performative way, but in a way that's really impact driven, both internally, sure, there's the metrics you're going to put on your impact report. But like I say, with fundraising, I'm like, don't just track the numbers of dollars or the number of new donors or your retention number. What are all the behaviors that your fundraisers are doing that you want to Mm -hmm. celebrate? What are they doing every day? Because don't tell me what you care about. Show me what you track. Don't tell me you care about your fundraisers and only track money. What are the things that they're doing? How are they being celebrated in other ways? Show me that you care about it by tracking against it by valuing it that way. And I think if I were to do something differently earlier in my career, it would have been that really figuring out like, what, what do I, like, what am I actually trying to do? What, what's the impact I'm actually trying to make? What are the ways for me to know that I'm on that journey in alignment, in integrity and to not learn from other people, but to shut out maybe some of that comparison noise. Yeah. Yeah. But I also think that's why it's important to have friends because Mm. you're holding everyone else up on this pedestal. Oh, they have it figured out. Mm. People tell us all the time. Oh, we look at how you do your social media. We look at your website and we're looking at everyone else being like, okay, Mm. I think we just all want to get better. And the answer in getting better at what we do and learning is each other. And then Mm. when I talk and we're like, this is really hard. And and we're able to share and come from a place of vulnerability. Mm. Oh, this is my struggle. This is what I'm working on. And if we can just come to the table again, all of us Mm. and let the guards down, let the nonprofit armor down and just be like, look, this is what I figured out. This is the book. I I like took notes on all your books. We share podcasts and we share knowledge Mm -hmm. and wisdom and we share our learning and our little hacks and what we're figuring out and we're in dialogue. And I think we just need more friends, Mm. you know, and, and more honest conversations around, (laughs) around, around this stuff. I know that's Mm. what has gotten me where I am. So instead of just like holding the pedestal Mm. or yeah, again, there is a jealousy. You see someone win this and like Mm. get this big grant or this big win. And you're like, why didn't we apply for that? Or, Oh, like they're over. It's, it is a comparative culture that we're in like Instagram Mm -hmm. world. And and we, as women, I think we need to fight that Mm. that comparison and just, Hey, let's learn from each other and applaud each other and uplift each other. You've been that for me. You've been such a cheerleader. Mm. It's been so brave to see you and the other women around you hosting these conversations and having saying the hard thing but I think just like more of this in our world and let's create community around it Mm -hmm. yeah the pedestals need to go yeah none of us have this figured out if we did we wouldn't have 153 million children living in poverty Mm -hmm. million children out of I mean if we had it all figured out Trust yeah. me, we'd be in a way different place. We're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're failing forward at the very least. Yeah. Falling upwards at the very least. And that's all we can hope for. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to your point about like sharing and building community around vulnerability, around saying the hard thing, around being honest about what didn't work or what had good intentions, but actually had a negative impact. Yeah. Yeah. I also think it's really important when we're looking at who we surround ourselves with 
to surround ourselves with people who are critical and will tell you the hard truths. Because I think when you're a nonprofit leader, it's easy to fall into the trap of yes people. And Mm. yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. And I look at another reason why we've been, we've had strength and we've had endurance and we've been doing good work these years. And I think it's because I'm surrounded by a whole lot of no people and a whole lot of no, turn it back, (laughs) dial it down. Um, and a lot of teachers and a lot of people to hold up the hard mirrors when you need them. Mm. And I think we all need to keep each other in check and have accountability and just, yeah, recognition and truth telling like to mm. each other too. Mm-hmm. Like, Cause if we get on and we're like, I've got it all figured out, but yeah, I think surrounding ourselves with those hard conversations and just having them. And that was the letter at the beginning of the mm. book. It's like, mm. I'm not going to get this right. I guarantee mm. you, <laughs> this is a very mm. complex field. I am not an expert. I only have my experience, mm. my story and my journey. That's all I've got. That's all yeah. I can share with you is my truth and what I saw and what I learned. And that's all yeah. we can do for each other. Like, who are you learning from in this space? And how are you reconciling all of this as a mm. leader yourself and having been there and evolving in your career? How are you finding your place in all of this? Yeah, I think definitely surrounding myself with people who are critical of me or who are going to push me back also feels like such an important thing. And I think making sure that I'm continually educating myself in a way that doesn't put a responsibility on particularly the black and brown women in my life to have to do the do work for me. And so Brianna Dorellis of Connecting the Cause is a huge educator teacher around sort of white supremacy and volunteerism in particular. She's a friend of mine, but I buy all of her webinars and educational resources. She has a great membership program for folks around decolonizing volunteerism. Kashana Palmer is someone else I follow around a lot of sort of DEI and like equity and justice-based leadership principles. Also Trudy LeBron, I'm looking at doing her equity-centered coaching program. I'm a certified executive coach, but I've always really struggled with how coaching fits within an equity and justice framework since so much of coaching principles can get rooted in toxic positivity or only talking about the inner blocks when there are systematic and structural barriers. And so how do you address that within the inner block conversation? So I think for me, being intentional about who I surround myself with, being intentional about sort of the education and resources I'm surrounding myself with, and to just really find the time, which I haven't been great at, especially actually since becoming a mom, but finding the time to drop into my own body and listen. And I just find that even when my brain can make every excuse in the world about something, my body never. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.